This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. today going to look at the moment of liberation. We're going to look at the moment of liberation for a million Israelite slaves, 3000 BC, at the moment that that happened. And also we're going to celebrate a moment of liberation uh, for Nunu and Annabelle and Sarah, that public declaration that they're free from slavery as their old life, we'll unpack that in a moment, and that they're uh, li- living life anew with Jesus. Let me just pray and then we'll go to work. Father, we pray for this uh, morning, we thank you for people getting baptized. We thank you for everyone here. Thank you for our kids and kids' work. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you'd speak to us all because you're the living God who speaks. Let your word change us and transform us and bring us into freedom. In Jesus' name. Freedom is one of the most powerful and evocative words humans ever express. We, we love the word freedom. We read about freedom. We dream about freedom. We rejoice in freedom. We teach. We campaign for freedom. We love freedom. I love that speech by Martin Luther King about freedom on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Abraham Lincoln, the emancipator of the American slaves. We love freedom. Freedom is that power to, to act or speak or think as you want. It's that uh, power of unrestricted self-determination, that I can think what I want, I can say what I want, I can choose what I want, I can do what I want. And we kind of love that in the 21st century. We love that sense of, I am free. We celebrate freedom. We understand that sense of freedom. But it's interestingly that, that, that actually choose, the right to choose has become more important than making right choices. It's kind of strange, the right to choose, I mean we hear it, see it in moral issues, we see it in economic issues, we see that the, the right, my freedom or your freedom to choose is almost more important than choosing the right thing. You know, the right to choose trumps every argument, it's even a campaign slogan, the right to choose. But, but the, the choice in itself doesn't seem to matter, it's, it's like the ultimate good is I'm free to choose. Rather than I'm choosing what's right. And right at the beginning of the Bible story, we kind of see this played out. Uh, the, the, the first humans, Adam and Eve, uh, offered, the, uh, offered the lie of self-determination. They offered this lie that if you, do, if you reject God, you'll be free to do what you want. You'll be free. And, and they believe that lie, and in that moment, they reject God. So it's almost like the choice, I will choose choice. I want to choose what's right and wrong in my own eyes. I want to do what's right and wrong in my own eyes. And that choosing choice is more important than choosing what's good. And we sang it just now, God is good, choosing what's good. And, the, and, the, and in the end, the, the thing is that they feel, well, it's a good choice. They're told that this is a good choice. The bottom line is, the sting in the tail is they don't get free. They don't get free at all. What happens is, and, and, and if you, I mean, you might not use the word sin in, 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 in the world you are, but sin basically means stepping away from God's stuff. All sin tempts you 
to choose what you think might give you freedom and pleasure and joy, but the bottom line is singing the tail, it never does. It always brings addiction. It always brings enslavement. And this is what we find right at the beginning of the story. Instead of Adam and Eve, the first humans becoming free, actually they become slaves to sin and, they, and death comes into the world. Andrew Wilson, uh, who's uh, not a member of our church, I say that every week, who wrote a book <coughs> called Echoes of Exodus, says this. Our generation is confused as a tr- to the true nature of freedom. Now listen carefully. No matter how often we experience liberation from constraints, uh, limitations and oppressions, we find ourselves falling into new bondages. We pursue liberty from prohibitions and fall into slavery to addictions. We es- escape repression and become enslaved by our own desires. We are released to follow our own choices but become captive to peer pressure. He, said, he says we choose freedom from God and become enslaved to evil, captive to sin and death. Now you might think it's a little bit extreme. It's a little bit heavy. I don't feel like I'm that. Okay, Jesus has probably got better authority on this issue than me. He says this. Jesus says this in John 8. He says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That truth, by the way, is him. He says, I'm the truth. Jesus says, I'm the truth. He says, you're going to know me, you're going to know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The Jews answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and never been slaves of anyone. I mean, that's wrong on a couple of levels, isn't it? Because they obviously never went to church and heard the Exodus series that says that in their history they were slaves. But it says, we've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be free? They think they're free, but he says, no, you're slaves. And then Jesus nails it and he says, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. True freedom is an illusion. True freedom is an illusion. It's, it's enslavement of our will and our actions. Not necessarily physical, like new world slavery. We're not talking about that kind of slavery. But slavery of our will and our actions is the default human condition. We want to do what's right and we can't. We want to choose what's good but we can't. We are constrained by other things. We, only Jesus offers freedom. He says, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. So in this story, what we've got is we've got this moment of freedom. We've got this moment where freedom is is happening, where it's not that the Israelites are in a neutral space. No, they're slaves of Pharaoh, and God wants to bring them to freedom. It's interesting, though, how uh, this freedom is physical. It's it's called harsh oppression, bitter service and hard labour, but it's also spiritual. We saw last week, those of us around, and I'll pick you up to speed if you want, we saw last week that, that... Actually, the Israelites were enslaved to Egypt's gods. And all of Egypt's gods were these kind of false gods that enslaved them. And we, can't, we haven't time to unpack it. You can get the sermon from last week. But basically, the plagues, we've had nine plagues in this story. All the different plagues are an attack on Egypt's god to say, let God's people go. So we've got this physical and spiritual slavery. And God sends Moses to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to demand the release of the Egyptians. And this is what he says. It's really interesting. Moses said to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord, or Yahweh, God, says, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my firstborn son go so he may serve me. 
but if you refuse to let my son go, I will kill your firstborn son. If you haven't been with the story, you don't know the story, actually, uh, Pharaoh is a genocidal ruler. He's, he's killed all the firstborn sons of Egypt in, in this kind of genocide, throwing them in the river, killing them. He's a genocidal uh, personification of evil, forcibly enslaving the Israelites and, and killing all their sons. And God says, actually, you're killing my son. Israel is my son. It's interesting that the word serve, uh, by the way, the, the, the Bible's, the Old Testament's written in Hebrew, so it is a translation. I know we all think that God's English, but actually the Old Testament's written in Hebrew. Uh, and, and the word serve is used a lot of times in Exodus. Six times it's used for the bitter service of uh, the Israelites to Pharaoh. And we'd get that. Service, slave, it's kind of the same thing. But actually, interestingly enough, it's also used ten times for God's, for the people's worship of God. So what we've got going on here is we've got Israelites in slavery, we've got Israel serving false gods and serving Pharaoh, the king of their gods, and, and, and God says, I want to take you out of that not to this neutral space called freedom, but to bring you into this space where you get to serve me. You get to serve me. It's really interesting. We think there is a neutral space. We think there are certain people that serve evil and we can categorise them you know, in different times and different places where it said these people we can serve, that these are, these are evil and these are enslaved to evil. And then there's a neutral space where the rest of us live where we can say, I'm going to do good or bad. You know, it's the Disney films. And then there's this other space of these few people that serve God. Now, that is not how it is. The reality is there's just... There's, there's no neutral space. We're mistaken if we assume that the world is neutral space. That we live our lives and make our choices free from powerful influences. Far from neutral, real spiritual forces are contesting for our lives. Jesus said that. Jesus said that, that you know, there's someone who's in charge of this world. In fact, John... John, his apostle, says this, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And then in Hebrews it says, this one, he who holds the power of death, that is the devil, who holds humanity in slavery by our fear of death. It's a big step for our uh, our Western mindset because we think, yeah, we're definitely free. But the, 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 the Bible worldview is that actually you're in one camp or the other. You're either slave to Pharaoh, slave to evil, and and you just can't help yourself, or you're slave to God. Those are the camps. And why have I spent so much time doing that? Because if you don't understand that dynamic, you won't understand the rest of the story. Now let's pile in quick. Woo. Okay, we'll do a long reading, and then we're going to unpack a few points, and then we're we're done. Let's read. So Moses said to Pharaoh... This is what the Lord says. About midnight, I'll go through, throughout Egypt. The firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who's at our handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be a loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever be again. But amongst the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any personal animal, then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. uh, Chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be the first month, the uh, the first month, the first month of your year. 
Tell the whole community of Israel on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for his household. If the family is too small for a whole lamb, then they must share one with their nearest neighbor, taking into account the number of people they are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you must choose must be year-old males without defect and you must take them from the sheep or the goats. Take these lambs in, as it were. Take, the, take them in, take care of them, the lambs, until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. They are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That night you are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat uh, uh, raw or boiled in water, but roast it (coughs) over the fire with its head and legs and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning, for if some is left in the morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked in your belt, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. On that night, I will pass, over, pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of people and animals, and I will bring judgments on all the gods of Egypt, because I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you in the houses where you are, and when you see the blood, I will pass over. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. On this day, you are to commemorate for generations to come. You are to celebrate a festival of the Lord, a lasting audience. Then Moses summoned all the elders and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a a bunch or a branch of hyssop, dip it in the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the tops of the doors and the door frames. None of you go out of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he'll see the blood on the tops and sides of the doors and he'll pass over that doorway. He will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses. And strike you down. Obey these instructions of the lasting festival for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. When your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean? Tell them, it's the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of Israel and Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped and the Israelites did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was a loud waning in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, go. And serve, there's that word again, the Lord as you've requested. Take your flocks and herds of you have said and go and bless me. Seems a harsh story in the sense of, you know, that, that, that God's saying, I'm going to let... I'm going to let judgment come on Egypt. If you noticed it, there's this kind of mixed message of God says I'm going to judge Egypt, but also this destroyer, death is going to come to all Egypt. God says, right, we're going to cast the verdict, death is going to come to all Egypt. And death comes to all of us. We might not think that it matters or it's important, and we kind of tend to hide it away, but death comes to all of us. So how is God going to bring his son Israel to, from freedom, from harsh service to Pharaoh and death under Pharaoh, to service and liberating to the Son of God? How is God going to free his people from slavery 
to sin, to slavery, to righteousness. The unpalatable, inescapable reality is that the price of freedom from slavery is death. There's no other way out for the Egyptians. There's no other way for freedom apart from something, someone has got to die. That's the only way out. And, and we don't really like that sense, but that's the reality. There's no other way out. There's no other way out for, for the Israelites uh, uh, to escape death. And so what happens is, I, I, I believe it's almost like, the, if you understand, that it's almost like God is, is saying, God keeps people from death. Death is like this powerful force that wants to come and take all of us, and it will take us as quick as we can. You know, the horrible massacres that we get in schools and the horrible stuff we see. Death wants to come and take all that are enslaved as quick as it can. It's almost like God says no. And then he says in this moment, death, the destroyer, you can go throughout Egypt and take all those that are yours. All of those that have rejected God, you can take them all. And you might not see the connection between physical death and that reality, but actually that's true. The fact that we all die is a proof that we're all slaves. The proof that we're all slaves to sin. So under cover of darkness, in the darkness, the verdict of God is exacted. The wages of slavery are paid. Blood is shed in every single house in Egypt. Now the interesting thing is, the Israelites don't stand in the neutral space. It's, almost like, it's not like the Egyptians are the baddies, God's the goody, and the Egyptians stand in neutral space. The fact is, the Israelites need saving as well. They stand over here. They might be slaves to Pharaoh, but like all of them, they're slaves to sin and death. This is what Paul writes in Romans 5. He says, sin entered the world through one man. We saw that earlier, Adam and death through sin. In this way, death came to all people because all sinned. The Israelites are not these good people that actually have done good things and, and obeyed God and done the right things and therefore God's going to be happy with them. The fact is they're all in that category. All of them, in each household, there's going to be a death. In each household, there's going to be a death. But yet, God says, I'm going to create a way of salvation, a way of escape, that you don't have to die. God's people, you don't have to die. God tells them how he's going to do it. And he says, it's not anything they're going to earn. It's not like saying, right, okay, I've got another 15 more rules. I've got another more, loads more rituals. I've got these things that you're supposed to do. God says, I'm going to create a way for you to live free. And I'm going to do it. And all you have to do is hide in your house. God tells the Israelites to take a lamb uh, uh, that were, there actually, it says, take year old males without defect. Why males? Because actually, it's the firstborn male that death's going to come and take. Why males? And it says, take them without blemish and sport and brokenness. Because there's a broken lamb couldn't die for Israel's brokenness. They needed a whole perfect lamb to die in Israel's place. And it says that the Israelites were to gather in communities. They didn't do this on their own. I know we tend to think of, uh, of, of following Jesus or Christianity or religion as this kind of personal thing that you keep in a corner that's your own thing. But actually, the truth is it's a community thing. That's why we gather here. 
That's why churches gather on Sundays. It's important to do that. It's a community thing. That's why when, when these guys are getting baptised, it's actually you gather because it's a community thing. We know that about marriage. It's a, it's a, you know, it's, a, it's, not, it's a personal thing, but it's also a community thing. It's expressed in community. And God wants this thing, this Passover, this lamb being killed, and this event to be a community thing. He wants them to share it together. So it goes into long details and say, make sure you've got the right number of lambs, make sure you've got the right number of people because they're going to eat it. Uh, Charles Wesley, the uh, founder of the Methodist Church in the 17th century, says the Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. You can't do it on your own. This this salvation event is meant to be shared together. It's meant to be shared in community. And if you're a Christian and you think, well, I go to church occasionally, you're missing the point. No, you're to gather together. If you're part of God's people, gathering together matters. Now there's something else that's interesting. God tells the Israelites to take the lamb and, and have it live in their house for four days. Let me ask a question just to kind of take a bit of light relief. Who has ever had a puppy? If you had a puppy. Now imagine that what would happen is you take the puppy and you had the puppy for four days. What starts to happen over those four days? You start to connect with this puppy. You start to think, this puppy's part of my family. I love this puppy. We were just talking yesterday in, our, in the car about like, you know, when our dog Milo was like, was just reverse removed from its mom and it used to whimper. Ooh, and, and then Maris said, you know, oh, it soon gets over it because it becomes very quickly part of your family. Why did God want the lamb to live in the house for four days? Because he wanted it to become a little bit like part of the family. He wanted the people to love this lamb so that when it was killed, they'd feel like, whoa, this is part of me. This is part of the family. This is like my substitute. You know, it's not like just some random lamb that we just pick up at at, at Tesco's. You never see it. It's just wrapped in film. This is something they they feed it and they wrap their hands through its wool and it's bouncing around the house. And then four days later, you've got to kill it now. Because what's at stake is in every house, there's going to be a death. In every house, there's going to be a death. And the question is, whose death is it going to be? And and, And the... the Israelites realised they've got to take this lamb. Now, they would have remembered the story, perhaps from their history. If you know, being a Sunday school at all, you remember the story where Abraham is, is, is asked to sacrifice his firstborn son, and he's going all along, and he's saying to his son Isaac, it's going to be fine, we're going to find a substitute, there's going to be another one, and he's about to kill his, his son, and then suddenly there's a sheep, a ram, a male ram that's caught in the bush. And God says, oh, you don't have to kill your son, kill this, kill this ram instead. Now they just, that was just a random lamb that they fought. But this idea of the ram in the place of the sun would have been in their history. And that's what's going on here. But this is a, a, not just some random, this is a, ram that's been, a lamb that's been in their family. It would have been a messy business. I don't know. I mean, it's anybody, you know, I, 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 find, I, I find death horrible. And I find even, you know, I know some of you are farmers. I hope you're arable farmers. <laughs> you know, they, they, they feel something safe. I love walking on the top of Leckhampton Hill and walking through the cornfields and feeling like I'm on the film, the film set of Gladiator. You know, I can get arable farming. But, you know, the, the, the pastoral farming, kind of farming of animals, is a, it's got a brutal side to it, hasn't it? And I know we kind of sanitize it away. But in this culture, it was like, take the lamb that's been living in your house and then take it outside and kill it. And gather the blood in a bowl. 
It's a bloody awful thing. It's a messy, horrible thing. And they said, take the blood, gather it in this bowl. You know, maybe it's spurted all over them. They gather it in the bowl. And they take the blood and then put it on the doorpost, up the side and across and down, not on the floor, but up the side. Put it on the doorposts. And then God says, when I go through, when I let death have its way and go through Egypt, it's going to see the blood on the doorposts and, it's, and you're going to be okay. Now, I guess the Israelites could have thought, hey, I've got true freedom. I've got freedom of choice here. I'm not going to do this sacrifice and this crazy lamb thing and this religious thing. I'm not going to bother at all. The fact is, it was the lamb or their son. That was the choice. It wasn't like, oh, yeah, I'm in this neutral space. We'll just kind of work it out. Let me read the passage. It says, When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, you'll see the blood on the tops and sides of the doorposts and pass over that doorway or pass over that house. He will not permit destroyer, death, to enter your houses and strike you down. It's interesting. I, I saw some, somebody says, well, doesn't God, knows it, God know who's inside? You know, if we were doing a bit of, kind of, we'll kill the Egyptians and let the Israelites go through. God knows who's inside. Tim Chester says this in his commentary about this. He says, the blood was daubed around the doors, not because God can't tell who's inside the house, but because he can. He knows there are sinners inside. The Israelites are just as bad in that sense as the Egyptians, each slaves to sin. The blood is a sign that a sacrifice has been made and that a substitute has been offered. So important to understand what's going on here. We think this is a crazy story. But actually, it's such an important story that God says to the people of Israel, remember, remember this, even before it's happened. He says, remember. Even before the events have happened, he says, this is going to be a festival. Every year, this is going to be a festival. Now remember it. Remember it's going to happen. Passover meals in Jewish culture are to embed this national story of God's liberation right into them. Funny things go on (laughs) in this event that they're supposed to do. He says, God says, tell the Israelites, eat bread without yeast. Uh, We lived in Manchester, massive Jewish community uh, near where we live, and a friend of mine used to run a fish tank business. And every year around springtime, around Passover time, he'd get loads and loads and loads of work. Because all the all the, all the Jews were, were ringing him up to say, I need to get all the yeast out of my house. I need to get it out of my fish tank. I need to get it out of out my kitchen. I need to get it, because there's got to be no yeast. And you think, what is this all about? Why is God, like, worried about yeast? I read, interestingly, uh, uh, that baking bread with yeast was invented in Egypt. And brewing beer, that's not the point here, with yeast, was invented in Egypt. You know, so in one sense, what, what the yeast represents is represents the old life. It represents, look, you're going to be coming out of this life of feeding, of eating on bread, and the bread was often sacrificed to, um, that were given to the Egyptian gods. We're going to get rid of all that that represents Egypt, and we're going to have pure bread without any Egypt in. So they ask him to do that, which is interesting. And the other thing is they say, eat the, eat the meal with your cloak tucked into your belt and sandals on your feet. They didn't eat the Passover in comfy with a dressing gown, onesie and slippers on. 
Like, oh, isn't this nice? It's like Christmas. You know, we eat Christmas. I don't know how the Americans do Thanksgiving. They probably don't do it with onesies on because it's a bit more decorum than us. But, you know, the, the slippers and, and gowns. I think, oh, this is a chill, nice little ritual meal. No, they said, eat it with your coat on, your belt on, your shoes on, your staff on, your car keys in your hand because you're going. Both of those, the yeast and the belt, are saying, you are leaving this place. You're leaving this place of slavery and you're going somewhere else. We've got to move it. We can live in church as if like, hey, we're just kind of slipping, slip, slippers, dressing gown, onesie, hanging on. No, you're either in this place or you're heading to this place. Belt on, coat on, we're going there. So he said, God says to him this, I'm, I'm nearly getting down here, guys. God says this, obey these instructions as a lasting remembrance for, uh, re- for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when the children ask you, what does this ceremony mean? Then tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes. We're good at remembrance, actually. uh, Actually, when Alex told his story a couple of weeks ago, he talked about going to Remembrance Sunday. The, The missing component of Remembrance Sunday is there's no nice meal, is there? I mean, I'm not big on Remembrance Sunday, but if there's a nice meal, you know, there'd be something about the nice meal that embedded in your culture. You think, yes, I Remembrance Sunday. But what do we say about Remembrance Sunday? It says, lest we forget. And the message of Remembrance Sunday is we remember those who died in our place, gave their lives so we could be free. This is Israel's Remembrance Sunday. I want you to remember that a life has been laid down, just this lamb in this case, a life has been laid down so you can be free. Don't forget it. Don't forget it. For 30 centuries, the Jews have sat down at Passover and done this meal. They still do this meal. They still celebrate this meal. They still eat bread without yeast in. They still eat bitter herbs. They still drink a cup. They still eat lamb. They remember. They're remembering. But there was one time, there was one Thursday evening in AD 30 that this Passover meal was happening again. And what happened was Jesus, because he wasn't married, and, uh, uh, he, and he, he gathered his friends around him. We had the 12 friends around him and says, we're going to do this meal together. We're going to eat this meal together, and we're going to break the bread, and we're going to drink the wine, and we're going to eat the lamb, and we're going to celebrate. And they do this. Jesus takes the bread. Something wrong with this bread? Not that it's not gluten-free. We have that over there. It's got leavening, isn't it? So it's not really the proper bread. It would have been a flat bread without leavening. Jesus takes the bread, holds it up, and says, this is my body broken for you. What he's saying is, I'm the true bread. What he's saying is, I'm the untainted bread, the bread without any any of Egypt in, any of that sinful, evil, I'm without that. I'm, I'm, I'm the God... Uh, uh, that's come down from heaven, the, the bread, and we'll do that later in this series, that comes down from heaven. I'm the bread of life, he's saying. You can take and eat this. This is, a, this is a taste of freedom for you. This is do this in remembrance of me. Jesus is taking the familiar symbols of this story, of, the, of Israel's story, and saying, 
this is a new story now. This is a new reality. He's taken the nation, shaping events of Passover and saying, this applies to you, my disciples. And what we're doing, and that's why I'm talking about it, and you might think, why does this matter? Because actually, what you do with this bread and this wine depends on which camp you're in. Depends whether you're going free or you're staying a slave. This meal that was a remembrance of Israel is now a remembrance of of him. Jesus' community of friends would have eaten it with their belts, uh, tuck, their cloaks tucked in their belts and their sandals on their feet. And just as a little sidebar, some people like this thing. What it says, after supper, Jesus took off his outer garments, belt, coat, and washed the disciples' feet. It's a little, sim- it's a little picture. They're already they're doing this meal. Jesus is washing the disciples' feet, saying, I'm going to make you clean. But 12 hours after Jesus had eaten this Passover meal, he was brutally crucified. I don't think the disciples would have known the the significance of what was going to happen. I think if they'd known the significance that when Jesus took the cup after supper and said, this is my blood... I, don't, I think they would have understood the meaning more clearly. They probably would have thought, yeah, we remember the blood was about this sacrificed animal and the blood was daubed on the upright and a crossbar of the, of, the, of the houses. They probably would have remembered that. But when Jesus said it was my, my blood, they would not have had a clue that Jesus saying his blood was going to be daubed on the upright and crossbar of a cross. That his blood was going to be the way that God would see and pass over. God was going to bring freedom. They probably would have understood it more clearly. They perhaps would have understood what John the Baptist had said some years earlier to them. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. They would have got it. They would have thought, yes, I get it. He's the... He's the He's the lamb without spot and blemish. There's nothing wrong with him. At his trial, Pilate says there's nothing wrong with him. No spot, no blemish in him. He's the firstborn son of his father. Interestingly, he came to dwell with us. He gets to come and not just be in the house for four days. Jesus doesn't come from heaven and say, I'm just going to be around for four days and do a few miracles and go on. He's here for 30 years. Actually, he's got text humanity on for eternity. He's come and dwelled with us. The disciples loved him, cared for him, he was part of their family. When, he's, when he was taken out and, and whipped and crucified and, and, uh, uh, and blood spurted out of him, it's one of their family. Perhaps they would have started to realise. Perhaps they could have started to realise, here is the salvation of the world. Here's the freedom for all humanity. As Jesus was crucified in the darkness, just like Passover happened in darkness, perhaps they would have realized, maybe they realized afterwards, here is the Lamb of God dying in their place. Instead of them, it was Him. Here is the blood that turns away death's destruction. Now, I know you might say, oh, actually, I've just got a little question there because I know that Christians do die. 
But actually what it's talking about is death that holds you captive away from the presence of God for all eternity. So death is a horrible thing. But one American pastor called John Piper said, Christians die differently. They die differently. I was talking to Roger Whittacombe at St. Paul's, Anglican vicar friend of mine who does a lot of funerals, and he says, when the people who don't know Jesus, when somebody in their family dies, they, they don't know what to do. They want to, to do the burial quick. They want to try and move on. They, they don't know how to cope. They, they don't believe in life after death, but then they use phrases like, oh, they're looking down on us. And they don't know what to do, and the last enemy of death stands over them, fearfully controlling them. But he says it's not like that with people that know Jesus. They're free. They live free. Yes, they shed tears, but they're free. When my mother-in-law died uh, just over a year ago this week, my son who's in South Africa says, we do not grieve as those without hope. Because we're part of a different story. If you know Jesus, you're part of a different story. That when death comes to take you, eternal death comes to take you, there's blood on your life. That's why Christians sing about the blood of Jesus. And you think, what are they on about? It's because the blood, God sees that there's been a death in your place to set you free. This is the moment of victory against all enslaving evil. There was no other way that people could be free from the mess and the broken world we see. This is the only way. This is the only way. To go inside of Jesus, as it were, to stand, as it were, inside Jesus and let his blood speak freedom over us. I love it when Martin Luther King, in that speech that I mentioned earlier, says, let freedom ring. And he goes through, he says, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain, Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain, Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every mountain and molehill. Let freedom ring. He's talking about freedom of civil rights movement, but actually that is the gospel. That's the good news that we're here to celebrate as these three people get baptised. Freedom has come. This is the moment of freedom. In the words of Paul the Apostle says that God has rescued us from the enslaving rule or dominion of darkness and brought us into the freedom of the Son He loves. Let's put it another way and I'll finish with this. I'm not going to explain it. It sort of explains it for yourself. In baptism we join with Jesus in His liberating death and life-giving resurrection. That's what we're going to do outside here. It isn't shaped like a grave, but that's what it is. This is what Paul writes in Romans 6 about it. It says, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? The Lamb of God. We're baptized into the Lamb of God's death. Therefore, we're buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For we know that our old self, the old slave self that couldn't do what was right, that tried our best, was crucified with him so that the body enslaved by sin might be done away with. That we no longer slaves to sin because anyone who's died has been set free from sin. 
Now, if we died with Christ, we believe we'll also live with him. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.